Drax is the largest provider of renewable electricity in the UK and plays a critical role in ensuring a secure energy system. The company has plans to invest billions in new infrastructure, such as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which will create thousands of jobs, whilst also delivering the energy needed by homes and businesses up and down the UK. Discover more at Drax.com. Hello and welcome to the special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Sophia Gaston of Policy Exchange and Sean Raymond, the Defence Correspondent. Now, Sophia, I mean, we're recording this on the Friday. It's been released on the Saturday. Just tell us how this past week has unfolded uh, seven days since that attack last Saturday. Well, of course, uh, the big story on the weekend was the horrendous terrorist attacks that Hamas inflicted on uh, largely the civilian population of Israel, um, men, women, children, the elderly, um, not only many people raped, butchered, killed, um, but also um, several dozen, perhaps over a hundred Israeli hostages taken into Gaza. Obviously, utterly horrendous stories about how that all transpired. And of course, over the days since we've been given more information as the Israeli military has been able to uh, seize control uh, of some of these villages, kibbutz that had been um, under siege. Of course, things are now shifting to the question of the Israeli response. Uh, As has been expected, Israel is obviously seeking to secure its borders, but um, it's also decided to launch an offensive. It has labelled this a war um, and is seeking to stamp out Hamas. Hamas is, of course, uh, based there in Gaza. What this has all led to, of course, is now another situation rapidly developing, which is a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, because, of course, Hamas is there embedded amongst a civilian population. So we've also got the uh, northern border issue as well. Um, Israel there with um, Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah, which, of course, is in some ways in lockstep with Hamas here, there are concerns that a conflict could sort of erupt and explode and spill over up there as well. So you've got Israel now, they're sort of defending two fronts and um, seeking an offensive into Gaza and uh, calls for the people of Gaza to leave the north and head down to the south where they would be presumably safer. But a pretty difficult situation across the board and um, it doesn't look as though there are any really good options uh, here and certainly no options without further civilian casualties. Um, Sean, can you just tell us a bit about the military strength of Israel's forces? I mean, what are the kind of likely strategies they're probably going to adopt here? Um, obviously, there's been the call up of reserves as well. And the IDF is well known for having you know, great technological strength. If you could just talk through that a bit. Uh, the the idea the Israeli Defence Force is a huge organisation reliant quite heavily on reservists. I think everybody has to do somewhere between twenty four and thirty months of military training and very committed as well. It's, you know, possibly unlike in other nations, um, it's got huge combat experience. Probably the most combat experienced force in the world, probably arguably because of the various conflicts which have been raging for, you know, many years now, tragically. They uh, get a lot of their weaponry from uh, the United States, so their combat jets, uh, a lot of their 
Uh, I think they've recently got um, some JDAM bombs, bunker-busting bombs, which have recently arrived, which will probably be used in the ongoing conflict. They've got their own huge weapons industry. So, you know, they are a very militarized society, I suppose you could argue. They've got a, a regular force of about 160,000, I think. And then I think they've got access to up to... The figure's always tricky with reservists because they're always coming and going sort of thing. But I think possibly up to 600,000 people. So huge, a huge force. And I think, again, the figure's always a bit blurred, but there's an estimated 300,000 troops massing on the border at the moment for, you know, ready for what is going to be a very, very difficult and complex um, military operation. Fighting in inside cities is enormously complex. It takes a huge amount of effort, uh, a huge number of troops, causes a huge amount of destruction and um, a huge number of casualties. And I think the statistic which is often used is that you will need um, something like a superiority of 10 to 1. So I think, again, these figures are very difficult to to pinpoint. But if there are 30,000 terrorists in Gaza, whether they're all going to remain or not is another thing. You're looking at possibly having, you know, 10 to 1 would be 300,000 troops. So huge operation. The the only thing I would have thought which might slow the ground offensive down would be that a lot of the reservists who have come forward recently may not have actually had any military training for several months, possibly even a couple of years. Um, So there may be a period of intensive training or getting troops ready, stockpiling of ammunition, stockpiling of of food, water, medical supplies, all sorts of things. Um, So that that, that I think is probably the, the situation at the moment. There is a British angle to all of this, which is that yesterday uh, Grant Shapps announced that Britain is sending a pair of Royal Navy ships to the eastern Mediterranean and is going to begin surveillance flights over Israel um, amid what's happening. Talk us through the thinking on this and what you're picking up in UK government circles. Well, I think what the the, the Brit- British government wanted to do was to wanted to show its support for Israel. And it's done this on a number of occasions where uh, there have been various operations going on around the world and what Britain does have, which can offer without sort of getting involved in hard contact, would be something like a surveillance aircraft, which can not only monitor, I mean, they do all sorts of things, you know, they can monitor what's going on, on the ground, they can monitor uh, enemy communications, terrorist communications, they can hack into mobile phones, they can do all sorts of things. But I think one of the things they would want to do is just make sure that the airspace is safe as well and that potential for say, another enemy force to get involved, uh, such as Syria, another enemy air force to perhaps, if it wanted to do anything, if it put in the aircraft up, then it could warn um, Israel straight away. Israel does have that capability on its own, but this is just Britain showing its support. Likewise, with the Royal Navy ships, you know, patrolling that part of the Mediterranean, you know, when you've got uh, an American carrier group heading down towards the eastern Mediterranean, there really is no need for anybody else because that is a major capability in itself. There are probably more aircraft on those American carriers than the RAF has in, you know, in entirety. So 
But this is just showing support, really. This is just so, show, saying that we're with you. We, we recognise your pain. We support you in the actions that you're going to take. Uh, Sophia, uh, talk us through what's happening in terms of Israeli politics, because obviously there was the announcement of a you know, cross-party coalition, emergency war cabinet that was formed. What's the reaction been like a week? And obviously there's been immense shock at the atrocities committed. But what's the kind of sense of the Israeli will on this and how much of that is extending in a kind of political sense to Netanyahu, who's been such a controversial figure there? Yes, I mean, these um, horrendous attacks have obviously come after a year in which Israel's society has become increasingly divided and has really been at loggerheads, particularly over some aspects of the Netanyahu government's uh, choices around judicial reform. Um, Of course, there's also concerns about some of the policies that it's been enacting in the West Bank and so on. So Israeli society on a political level has really been quite divided and and the opposition leader you know there's been quite fierce battles there in the sense that there are really profound distinctions on how they believe that Israel should be run as a country and 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 geopolitically as well but what we've seen since the attacks really has been a coming together in a in a quite extraordinary way that i think is perhaps confounding to some observers externally because uh, obviously we've had such extensive reporting, um, particularly over the last nine months, of of these huge battles and and protests and and you know so all of this kind of social discord over over the government. What we've seen now is the coming together of the opposition into a wartime cabinet. You know, and I think when when sort of pressed on this, the opposition leader said that, you know, they were fighting for a shared destiny here. So this is seen in some ways as kind of existential for Israel moving forward in a way that cuts through political division. So I think all of that discord we're seeing sort of really set aside. The Israeli people are coming together. Civil society is really mobilizing in an extraordinary way as well. That's an important dimension of all of this. So obviously, at some point, there are going to be some decisions that may in some ways touch on these, um, uh, you know, divisions that have been held before these attacks. But I think for now, what we're seeing is an extraordinary degree of unity. Earlier on Spectator TV, we also had uh, Mark Regev, Netanyahu's senior advisor, who was very critical of Tehran's role in all of this. Well, if, if you use a, a snake metaphor, allow me to use an octopus metaphor, that Israel is fighting the tentacles, but the head is in Tehran. And there is a strategic logic in saying, well, you're fighting the tentacles, but you can't really win the war unless you deal with the head. So is that a suggestion that a, a direct attack on Iran is not out of the question? It's, it's, it's a suggestion that we understand the strategic situation in which we live, nothing more. What is the kind of chance of Israel taking that kind of step if there's more, more connections or more developments proven in that area? And how do their military capabilities compare? I would have thought that, you know, attacking a city the size of Gaza, which has a population of, um, you know, having to move out a million people and then going into that city and fighting a ground war in that, uh, in, in, in a city and all that that involves is going to be a phenomenal undertaking you, you cannot emphasize enough how difficult a mission that will be and so the idea of then opening up a new front um, in Iran I think I think is is 
you know, Israel could. It's got the capability. It's got the aircraft. It's got, you know, precision missiles. It can do all of that. But does it really want to? Does it really want a wider conflagration, really? I think it's it, it's concerned about its northern border with Hezbollah. And there was some action uh, earlier on in the week, although I think Hezbollah has sort of stepped back a little bit from that. You know, I just think that you cannot emphasize enough the difficulties um, which Israel is going to face and the cost which it's going to face once it goes in, once this ground operation starts. Um, And it will really want to focus its sort of military effort on that, really. And Sophia, what's the reaction been like in the wider international diplomatic community here? Uh, You know, I think there was a lot of shock when we first saw the images that came out last weekend. Just a week on, how we've obviously seen with Joe Biden has been very staunch in defence of Israel. How likely is that kind of, is there, to what extent is there an international consensus on this issue? And uh, how do you see it unfolding in the coming weeks, particularly if, as seems likely, Israel does go in and launch a ground invasion? I think it's fair to say that there has been a Western consensus on this, but certainly not an international consensus on this. So the Western allies have been in lockstep in denouncing any kind of moral equivalent being presented between Israel and Gaza casualties, reinforcing Israel's right to defend itself. Um, We are increasingly seeing all allies promoting the message that any responses from Israel must be within the constraints of international law and not targeting civilians. Um, But for the most part, I would say that it feels as though certainly the, the large Western powers, Britain included, have been really forthright in making clear that this is, um, you know, an issue on which Israel has their full support. And of course, you know, I think as well as that, the sort of military and defensive capabilities, aid that the US is providing and so on, I think there is a feeling that that moral and symbolic support um, really does carry weight at this time. Unfortunately, we have um, a lot of problems in, in Western societies, though, and this the sort of scourge of anti-Semitism and the way that these sort of pro-Palestinian protests and rallies are playing out in a lot of Western societies is causing and highlighting a lot of divisions there. Um, you know, there are going to be big pro-Palestinian rallies in London this weekend. We know these will almost certainly contain elements of anti-Semitism, the glorification of violence against Israelis. I think the Met is really going to be on trial here after the appalling scenes we saw on the weekend. And actually what we've seen in Paris and Berlin um, is actually a ban on these um, pro-Palestinian demonstrations at this time, saying that they are just sort of really damaging for community cohesion and the safety and security of the Jewish people. And I think those um, concerns are well-founded, not just because of what we saw um, on, on the weekend in some of the rallies in the UK, but also because of what we're seeing in, in different parts of, um, you know, in diff- several Muslim majority societies around the world, there have been some really horrendous anti-Semitic and anti-Israel protests as well. So it, it is a pretty extraordinary situation in, in the scheme of things, and it's hard to imagine other 
um, examples of where the victims of a terror attack are, are their deaths are being celebrated um, in in such a way. So um, I, I think you know the question about the international reaction here I think has several components. Um, but I think that the way in which Western governments are in lockstep on their public unity, the public diplomacy, the stream of very senior politicians we've had going into Israel. I think is sending a very important message. But um, as we say, the, the fight is also at home here and making sure that um, the Jewish populations in, in Western societies are also feeling safe. Well, thank you, Sphere. Thank you, Sean. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.